Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Episode 67 of The Bowery Boys. The Guggenheim Museum. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. The Bowery Boys is brought to you by Eurocheapo.com. Eurocheapo editors personally visit and review the best budget hotels in Europe. Now with hotels in New York City. On the web at Eurocheapo.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bowery Boys. My name is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. Thanks for joining us for another week of New York City history. This week we're going to turn our attention to the great old Guggenheim Museum on the Upper East Side. But before we go uptown, Greg, I think we should just take a second to say thank you to all of the New York City trivia fans who showed up last week for our trivia event in the East Village. For the Municipal Arts Society at the Place Common Grounds. Thank you all for showing up. It was packed and it was really really fun. Uh, I think everyone had a great time. The Municipal Arts Society did a great job of putting this event together. We were honored to be the hosts, and it was fun to meet some of the listeners, too. But today's episode, um, the Guggenheim Museum, it's one of the more unusual museums in New York City, but certainly the most storied and respectable. The most storied and respectable? Uh, One of... One of the most storied and respectable. The origins of the museum are really fascinating because it's all of these extremely colorful characters who basically come together with their love of a very particular kind of art. It culminates in the in the creation of this really wacky, unusual building that has torn and divided people, you know, ever since it was uh, even planned out, even when it was just models. So you can make that decision for yourself. As you join us, as we wind our way up and through the history of the Guggenheim. All right, Greg. Well, you already said that the Guggenheim is in Manhattan's Upper East Side, uh, but perhaps you can situate us a little bit more exactly. Absolutely. The uh, the Guggenheim Museum, which is, of course, run by the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation. Right, because that's the official name of the museum. That is right? the official name. This Yes, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. It is on 1071 Fifth Avenue at 89th Street. It's on, of course, what we call Museum Mile, where some of the major museums are there that you can all visit just on a one lovely afternoon if you want to. The Guggenheim is primarily a modern art museum, and they often have a lot of brand new art there, as well as retrospectives. Their current director, Richard Armstrong, literally was just hired this month, and he's taking over from Thomas Krenz, who I'll mention a little bit later. That's he, October of 2008. Yes, October 2008. Uh, Krenz was responsible, actually, for most of Guggenheim's expansion to other places, which we'll mention a little bit later. As I said, they are they specialize in modern art, and things are often arranged thematically, as well as retrospectives by artists. In the terms of this podcast, what is modern art? I mean, I don't want to give an art lecture. Oh, yes, you do. But as our story will begin in the late 1920s, you know, what is modern art to them? 
essentially it's paintings and sculpture and photography, things like installation and videos would come much later, obviously. They're conceived as like non-traditional or, quote, abandoning the foundations of all the centuries of art that have gone before them. And there's two terms that we should point out in this particular podcast. One of them is non-objective, and the mm-hmm. other one is representational. Representational is basically a bowl of fruit on the table, but because I'm an impressionist or something, it might be done in a very blurry or in, a, in an unconventional manner. But it, So it would be a modern take on something you could identify. A, a woman or a bowl of fruit or something, a cat. An object, yeah. Yes. A non-objectivist will, will paint something that is you is not a, a known construct of this universe, like Rothko, Mondrian. Basically, they're concepts, they're swaths of color done in an emotional way. Okay, so that's a non-objectivist. A non-objectivist, a, yes. Obje- <laughs> Objectionate. Say it 20 times fast. Yes. And we'll, uh, we'll explain why that's a, a distinction we need to make for this show. We're talking about a lot of rich people who essentially are buying a lot of art and become infatuated with it. How mm-hmm. did this really happen? The event that basically lit the, the match for this whole thing was the 69th Regiment Armory Show in 1913. The, the, this is the armory, Tom, on Lexington and 25th, 26th Street. Okay. Do to know sure, that building? Yeah. Um, it's basically this whole show was like an alien ship that landed in the middle of the United States. I mean, it's, it was the first significant <laughs> collection in in the United States, of, quote, modern art. Things like scandalous art, like Marcel Duchamp's uh, New Descending Staircase. A vast variety of just of pieces that, like, were frankly, were not hanging up in, say, the Metropolitan Museum sure. of Art at this time. It weren't hanging in any of the homes of the wealthy. But it was such a new and fresh and exciting wet thing that, of course, it did become a dalliance of the rich to start buying some of these things up to decorate their own homes. Um, and they would even create their own little private galleries in their homes for their friends, Tom. Can you imagine having an apartment where you could just create a little gallery for your friends? Like, come on over and look at my artwork. Um, that's what people like Abby Rockefeller did before she, cr- of course, went on to create the Museum of Modern Art. So a lot of these people even, like, would sponsor some of these artists. Many of these were, like, starving artists in Paris or or in South America or what have you. And they would make their names thanks to a lot of the wealthy here in the United States. That kind of lays the groundwork for what happened at the Guggenheim, and which also kind of had a be- beginnings very similar to that. Well, you mentioned that our story began in 1913, but I actually think that we need to go back a little bit earlier than that to 1861. Oh, because we're gonna, we're not we're going to talk about the family. I'm yes, assuming. we need that to we- talk about Solomon the man, Solomon R. Guggenheim. Sol. Sol Robert is that R. Uh-huh. He was born in 1861 into a pretty well-off family in Philadelphia. He had seven siblings, and the family, his father Meyer, um, had, a, had a successful needlework company. And I believe he even like sold lace as well. So he, just, he, he made... Greg, stop embroidering the story here. Let's <laughs> okay. just pull back a second. But the family wasn't rich, I don't think we'd say, but they had a successful thing going. Successful enough that Saul was sent off to, um, to Zurich to study in Switzerland. And when he came back home after his studies, he joined the family business. The family fortune shifted pretty dramatically in 1879 when his father bought into a silver and lead mining company. Oh, um, that's kind of a change of pace. Well, he started investing in these different industrial companies. 
they ended up paying off quite handsomely for the family. And the Guggenheim family would become a mining powerhouse. And, the- and so young Saul would be, you know, sent around to, to work wherever he was needed. He was in, in Europe for a number of years before he came back here. And then he was even sent down to Mexico, where he spent years working between New York and Mexico and establishing a company in, in Mexico. So he had these mining companies really on a global scale happening in you know the very end of the 19th century it's kind of fabulous well it's kind of well, he's also becoming kind of worldly of he's, course he's traveling all over the place and seeing lots of new things and so um this is maybe spawning on maybe his future interest in artwork well he he was also in chile where he became the president of a copper company and then went up to alaska in 1906 where he founded the yukon gold company uh, so he really he really shuttled between many many different countries That's here. Some really hardcore industries too, I have to say. Very brawny. Hardcore. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, in the meantime, he had actually found time to find a wife and get married and married well, I have to say, because he married into the famous Rothschild family, Ooh, the banking Rothschild. family from New York. Yes. Irene Rothschild, in fact, in 1895, got married to Saul. Irene also introduced him to some other fine things, including the love of art and the collection of art. Well, the Rothschild was, a, was an older family, so they were sort of um, wealthy traditions, I guess. And Perhaps. so one of these things was probably artwork that, the, he, that they obviously passed on. And so they started traveling and collecting art. He would retire in 1919 at the age of 58, and at that point devote himself really to collecting art. So all he did was collect art then at that point. Okay. And at at the beginning, he was really focusing on the old masters, um, you know, traditional European style masterpieces, whatever he could get his hands on, which is typical, of course. The usual suspects. But as you're bringing up here, there was this new trend coming. It was becoming more popular to sponsor and acquire uh, some of these modern artists. So I would say the story takes a major turn. In 1926, when Guggenheim meets oh, a certain Baroness. I, would her name, would it happen to be, Tom, <laughs> the Baroness Hilary Bay von Ehrenweisen? <laughs> Is it the same Baroness? Well, I, I, I actually just call her Hilary Bay. But, <laughs> but yes, if you're using her full Baroness title. She'll come if you call her by that. <laughs> yes. And she's Good. never late for dinner. <laughs> But, uh, yes, Rebe in 1926, she was 38 at the time and had been living in Berlin for a number of years, I think 13 years, uh, getting to know a lot of the German abstractionists and she was, she was making a, painter, a name for She was herself. a painter herself. Yes, she was a painter herself, and she did portraits, uh, I believe, just to make money and to you know pay her bills, but she was also really involved in this new abstractionist scene. And she was also a collagist, I think. She was a collagist. I think she... She sounds kind of new agey, doesn't she? I mean, she's really she's, spiritualist. She's into all these different things. She's looking to deconstruct art. She's well. She believes. She, she really believes in this um, non-objectivist movement. She thinks that this is this artwork actually is infused with spirituality. Mm-hmm. She believed this kind of art would. This is a quote from her: "Elevate into the cosmic beyond, where there is no meaning, no intellect, no explanation, but something." 
infinitely greater, the wealth of spiritual intelligence and beauty. So she, this wasn't just something to decorate a room no, with. No, and I don't mean to, you know, a take a swipe at it either. I'm not making light of it. She, she was fully invested in this, but she was also making money as a portrait painter. And that's how she met Guggenheim when he sat for her a number of times. And from a couple of reports that we read, it looked like they also had a little affair going on. Well, she seemed like th- this is one of these relationships I think someone needs to write a book on one day. It was sort of a, they were lovers, they were muses, it was like father-daughter, it was like Madonna-child, it was all these sort of like... Right, he was these, like 30 years older than her. It but, was a very sophisticated relationship. She was a very severe woman. And she also introduced him to the world of modern art. Together, they started traveling around Europe, uh, visiting different studios. For instance, in 1930, he went with Ribé to Vasily Kandinsky's studio in Dessau, where he bought many paintings. Eventually, Eventually, Guggenheim's collection would include more than 150 Kandinsky paintings. So, Can you imagine how much that would be worth today? That's unimaginable. But wait, more than Kandinsky, because she would also introduce him to the works of Klee, Chagall, Leger, Mondrian, you name it. She was like, you know, Modern Art 101 on tour with him. Right, the guiding force. Access to these artists. But what was he supposed to do with all of his old masters? things you so, know yeah, what did he so what did he keep i mean if he's got where do you put all these paintings well in his case greg you put them in your apartment like you said before you show them on the walls of your apartment you invite people over sometimes you know various members of the public are allowed in to see to see these he as it turned out had an eight-room suite at the plaza hotel oh well that's is that all right and i i guess you're allowed to hang paintings on the wall if you rent out a suite at the plaza because he covered his walls in paintings and it's funny because his old dutch masters he relegated to his wife's bedroom he also had to take out rooms at carnegie hall at the apartment building at carnegie hall just to put in some of these paintings and hilla i guess also lived in the same apartment building so it sounds a little complicated what a horrible life these people have <laughs> Fabulous rooms in the plaza and the Carnegie Hall filled with expensive artwork with your mistress staying in the same building. Times were tough. And it wasn't this kind of sounds like a Marx Brothers comedy, doesn't it? <laughs> it does a little bit. Like a night at the museum or something. <laughs> During the same period, he took his collection on tour as well. In nineteen thirty six, he sent his stuff off to Charleston, South Carolina, and also Philadelphia to introduce other people to these modern artists and to sort of, you know, build the movement a little bit. It's very noble win, of him. Right. To win some new acceptance of, of the whole movement. While his exhibit was in Philadelphia in 37, he created, along with our friend Hilla, the Solomon R. Guggenheim Foundation and appointed Hilla as the curator of the foundation. But let's not forget, Greg, this was also during the Depression. So sure. many of these artists who they were promoting also were having a hard time paying bills. And so the foundation was there to also give scholarships and grants to artists who were having a hard time making ends meet. And also European artists who were fleeing fascist governments, fascist governments, sure. et cetera, refugees and throughout the 1940s then could also get some money and some grants from the foundation. So they were doing wonderful things. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. 
hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. But they eventually decided that they wanted to have a public place where, where they could actually display this art and people could come in and see it that weren't just their friends. Exactly. And so um, in April of 1939, they opened the first, and actually the only one with this title, but the first Museum of Non-Objective Painting. And that would be at 24 East 54th Street. It's it's a catchy name, isn't it? <laughs> but it sounds kind of like a kooky place. If you read some of how they had the place de- designed, first of all, they had... They had Bach and Chopin would be playing as you're walking through the hallways and looking at the artwork. Isn't that all very nice? They would have damasks on the walls. Um, they, it would be one of the very first first usage of fluorescent lighting. The paintings would be really hung really, really close to the floor because they were meant to be seen as you were sitting down, not as you were standing oh. up and looking at them. Um, were there chairs? There were some chairs around. Yes, there were. The very first show was on June 1st of that year. It was called The Art of Tomorrow. And indeed, it was all this non-objectivist art. Mostly paintings from Solomon's collection. Kandinsky and, and uh, this man named Rudolf Bauer were the mm-hmm. chief paintings that were ha- hung. The critics loved Kandinsky. But they hated the Bauer. Bauer was a, a German painter. He actually was sort of a pet artist of the Guggenheim. He actually ended up moving to New York, by the way, fleeing Nazi Germany, and moved in with Hilla. And surprise, Rudolf and Hilla became lovers. Oh. Um, but unfortunately, Bauer would, at least from his perspective, would basically get screwed by the Guggenheim Foundation. He signed an agreement. They were, I mean, he was literally being sponsored by them completely, and he was producing artwork, and they were owning it all. He would basically sign some paperwork that would basically sign away all the rest of his future works to the Guggenheim Foundation. He freaked out about this and decided that he was never going to paint again, and he even sued Hilla for libel a little bit later. This whole thing would bring down his own reputation and would actually, as we'll see in a minute, would bring down Hilla's reputation as well. How unfortunate. So eventually, when the, when the Guggenheim that we're about to talk to actually opens, his art is would never would not be hung there when it when it finally opened and keep in mind like this is one of the prime artists that Mm. solomon had actually collected what happened to the museum then well they decided that they they needed to expand to an even a larger museum so in 1943 hilla being the curator of the solomon guggenheim foundation wanted to find someone to commission to open a brand new gigantic museum temple that she wanted to open (laughs) 
That's her temple. own words, museum temple. And we, we should also add that back at the Museum of Non-Objective Art on 54th Street, she was also kind of like burning incense and right. there was plush carpeting. Oh, right. It, it, it sounds like a kind of a, I don't know, like a trippy place almost. Like it just... A kind lot. of a cult. So it's, a, it's very weird that Hilla would end up hiring, of all people, America's preeminent architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, to build the Guggenheim Museum. But why did she do it? Hilla was getting so much criticism for basically bankrolling all these Europeans. Like, they, they had almost no Americans in their collection. But she thought that this might help satisfy people's... It's like, you know, okay, we'll, I'll, we'll get the most American architect. Well, we should also remember that she was a German woman in 1943 in the U.S. And, so and there maybe, might have been some pressures on her. True. Very true. Now, Frank Lloyd Wright, we have... Look, he really is the world's most famous architect. As a, as a matter of fact, the American Institute of Architects called him the greatest architect of all time in 1991. So throughout his career, though, he would end up designing more than a thousand different buildings. He was, in fact, in his late 70s when he was finally commissioned to do the Guggenheim. That's, I mean, that's a fairly August in his year, so yes. to, you know. And he is a man who has his own style. Keep in mind all the different architectural styles that are happening around here. You've got the, the Art Deco. You've got the international style coming up on the horizon, but not him. He has his own style. It's basically an organic type of architecture, lots of natural light, lots of material, very natural. Mm -hmm. His famous, most famous residence that I think everyone knows is the Falling Water House in Pennsylvania, which is built over that waterfall. Now, so it sounds like Wright was a little kind of a strange fit for this non-objective museum. He even it seemed like kind of a strange fit for New York in general. He'd only built a house in Staten Island, and that was the only thing he had in the New York area up to wow. this time. But he wanted to take this on as a challenge late in life. He rose to the occasion, and he literally created something that we can say is outside the box. I mean, <laughs> even for him. Listen to this. This is his sort of thesis statement on it. Here is the ideal I propose for the architecture of the machine age, for how an ideal American architecture should develop in the image of trees. The image of, of trees. I don't really see it, but um, this was sort of uh, his thesis going into this. Um, so in this was 1943 when they decided that they should have a permanent structure. I guess the best way to really describe the building is to read you a letter that he wrote to Hilla directly. Mm -hmm. uh, just an excerpt from it. Um, the museum should be one extended experience expansive, well-proportioned floor space from bottom to top, a wheelchair going around and up and down throughout, no stops anywhere, and such screened division of the space gloriously lit within from above as would deal appropriately with every group of paintings or individual paintings as you might want them classified. So basically, it, it was the whole space should be luminous and should have places, corners that were darkened and some corners that were really light. He also said there should be no stuffs, either curtains or carpets. There should be much crystal, much greenery about, no distracting details anywhere. In short, a creation which does not yet exist. So he wanted to basically redefine what a museum was. I like that, without the stuff. Without the without stuff. The fancy stuff. Just give me the art. The defining form of the place would be this ancient form of the ziggurat. A ziggurat is a, like a Babylonian Sumerian building. It sort of tapers up towards the top. He thought that these type of buildings, like pyramids, Egyptian pyramids, were like they represented death. 
because they would often be tombs of, uh-huh. uh, of great pharaohs. So he thought that by flipping it upside down, which is what the, which is what the Guggenheim right, is. Right, because it kind of it goes it out, out at the time. Right. That it would create this livelier in, environment. Now, there was, before a brick was laid, as they say, there was already so much criticism. During the construction of the building, which I'll talk about in a, in a little bit, someone had mentioned that the walls wouldn't actually be large enough to display the art. And Frank just turned to them and said, well, then you can just cut the paintings in half. So, you know, maybe that wasn't a quote that you wanted to get out to the press. Many artists disliked it, even in the planning phase. As a matter of fact, there was a letter of protest that was signed by 22 artists, including one of them by the name of William de Kooning. So, you know, some very high profile names were already coming out against this. So all of this is happening after 1943 when they decide to construct this museum. Yes. And it takes years and years throughout this planning stage. And, and nothing's even, they haven't, like, keep in mind, nothing's been really built yet. This is all planning. It's sketches and sketches and planning and criticism models, yes, and yes. models. Uh-huh. And then in 1949, a wrench is thrown in the works when Solomon Guggenheim himself passes away in Long Island. He was 88 years old. So that certainly throws things off a bit. He he knew something bad was going to happen. He had even wrote his trustees like almost on his deathbed a long letter to try to instill confidence into the into the board of trustees about Hilla, but also about just non-objectivist art in general. He even left the foundation ten million dollars, with two million of that to be allotted to the museum. Of course, as soon as he died, the trustees completely abandoned the, the original concept. They were like, "No, we want." representational art in there too like they wanted to expand it to to be like a modern art museum similar to the museum of modern art you know Mm. across town rebay was actually forced to step down as curator because they thought they thought she was tempestuous they didn't like the direction she was going they basically pushed her out of the door you could say his dying wish didn't amount to a hill of beans (laughs) oh god I'm sorry. I mean, you got to do something with. Well, Hilla. you're gonna feel bad after I read you this. Even oh, no. even Frank Lloyd Wright turned against Tilla. He basically, at one point in a letter, he said, "Your allegations are beneath contempt. The psychopathic ward is where such conduct invariably ends." And the icing on the cake here is that they actually changed the name of the museum from the Museum of Non-Objective Painting to the Solomon R. Guggenheim Museum. They even wanted to change the, this crazy building that, that Frank was designing. And Wright really had to plead to the board. He did have to make some adjustments, but luckily most of the general style of the building was still held intact. So it has taken forever, and they still haven't gotten anything into the ground. You know, it, the reason it took so long and had, there were so many delays was, I mean, there was, first of all, it was of course, a moratorium on new buildings being built in New York in the 40s due to the war. During the war, right. It really took forever to find a suitable site, really, that you could build this sort of odd-looking building that would be suitable to the neighbors. And then, of course, Tom, I'm about to mention someone's name that we haven't mentioned in maybe a couple podcasts. You know else who headed this building? Robert Moses. No. You would think with all that concrete that Robert Moses would have loved this. <laughs> and you could uh, you could probably drive an auto up the ramp, you know? <laughs> exactly, but it wasn't... Car-friendly. It, it wasn't his slab of concrete, and that's why he didn't like it. <laughs> they basically had some really difficult times with getting some building permits, which 
I think maybe he has something to do with. He called the original design of the building an inverted cup and saucer with a silo thrown in for good luck. So that was his opinion of it. But eventually oh, they Bob. did eventually they did get the proper permits. They finally started building in August of 1956. They they built it in a style called gunite and it's a it's a mixture of sand and cement. And what what they did is they created a plywood framework mm-hmm. around the building. So they made this it's like a bunt cake pan Mm -hmm. and um they basically spray it's a a concrete spray that they cover the inside of the of the plywood framework and of course there's still reinforcement there also this was actually one of the first architectural uses of gunite but this would be used in many buildings in the future the outer surface would be later painted in a ivory colored vinyl skin which they would call the cocoon and I'll get to there's a big controversy about the color of the building, which I'll get to. The building totally fit Wright's design to a T. Like he was really proud of it. Unfortunately, he didn't get to to live to see it open. Six months before it opened, he died at age 92 in 1959. So the two men that really you know put their heart and soul into this building were not there to see it. And Hilla didn't show up for the opening in 1959. Was anybody at the opening in 1959? <laughs> well, actually, there, there was a huge gala party on October 19th. Uh, all the critics were invited then. The mayor, Robert Wagner, was there. And yes, Robert Moses was also there. Mm-hmm. Um, two days later, they had the opening for the public, and people loved it. On the first day, there were 16,000 people just streaming in to see this building. For the public, at least, this building is a huge success. During the first six months, half a million people streamed in to see see this building maybe not to see the artwork but to definitely see the building and that's part of the objection that some of the critics had at the time the main criticism that the building itself sort of overpowers the artwork that it's supposed to be housing and it distracts you as a visitor from really paying enough attention to the work because well you're you're watching this kind of cool ramp that you're walking up and down. You're looking over the edge. You're looking down at the floor. You're looking up at the skylight. It's a beautiful building, and you're ramping up and down. And, oh, yeah, there's stuff on the walls, and there's sculptures scattered <laughs> here and there, and that's why we're there, right? I, I plucked a quote. I can't remember who this is from, but it's it's less a museum than it is a monument to Frank Lloyd Wright is one way to look at it. It was summed up by Ada Louise Huxtable. I think you might remember her. her. She was the art critic of the Times, I believe. The Pan Am podcast. I think she sums it up nicely, kind of sums up all the criticism when she says that it has been hailed as a masterpiece, attacked as an atrocity, called the finest museum of all time, and denounced as no museum at all. So that's really, I mean, like, every, like right. everyone has their own opinion. Even today, people are that way, I think. Well, you know, there are some real issues with hanging art in that museum that persist today. And I recently went to the Louise Bourgeois show that mm-hmm. was there a couple months ago. And it was the first time that I really thought about this because, you know, her sculptures and things were freestanding. They were displayed along the ramp as you moved up. So things sometimes were at a slight tilt because, of course, they were on a ramp. It's on a square wall that you're looking at. I mean, they do have little well, gallery rooms. Well, but even rooms. sculptures standing there right. could be at a little bit of a tilt. And then, right, every so often there's a landing or a niche, and those would be areas where there would be a flat floor and flat walls, but the walls are slightly concave as you walk up the ramp. It's an unusual exhibition space. But still very successful. Um, the 
Solomon's son Harry basically takes over the affairs, and they live off the endowment for the, uh, the first decade. They do end up acquiring art uh, throughout the course of the years. A major acquisition was in 1963 with this a lot of important works by Degas and Picasso from the collection of Justin Tannhauser, including yeah, 30 Picassos. Right. So there was a huge major acquisition. Major. And then in 1974, they get $40 million acquisition from someone with a very similar name, Peggy Guggenheim. In fact, she is the niece. Right. She built a wonderful collection of her own and then had a gallery in New York at about the same time as her uncle's in, gallery. In 1942, she had launched a show in New York of her own artwork, and she called that Art of the Century. Before heading off to Venice, where she bought a one-story villa that was located, is located right on the Grand Canal, and put her amazing collection in this villa and opened it up as a museum in Venice. That would later sort of be acquired by the Solomon Guggenheim Foundation, and the foundation today runs the Venice Museum as well. And aren't there a few? There's a few other Guggenheim museums that have opened in Bilbao, right, right, and in Berlin. And New York City for the Soho, the Guggenheim Soho, which yep. was in operation for 10 years. That was from 1992, and it was on Broadway and Prince Street. And right. yes, that was, a fun, that was a little fun museum. Um, it had like Paul Klee, Art of the Motorcycle was there. Andy Warhol's Last Supper was also hung there. And then didn't a motorcycle exhibition open up in Las Vegas yes. with the Guggenheim imprimatur on it as well? Yes, it did. The, uh, there was a, for a short time, there was a Guggenheim Las Vegas. In fact, Thomas Crun, who is the curator who's stepping down, was the one that initiated a lot of the sort of branching, branching out of the Guggenheim name, the brand. Right. Um, now, the, uh, back to the museum itself. I mean, although the design, of course, can be argued as being flawless or not, the construction definitely was not. It's gone through a lot of, reno- of different kinds of renovations. In 1990 to 92, they actually had to put insulation in the building because there was absolutely none. And in 92, they added a big rectangular addition to the museum behind Frank Lloyd Wright's, which is, I guess, more traditional museum space. And around this time in 1990, it actually declared a landmark by the New York uh, City Landmark Preservation, which at the time, it was the youngest building to ever be named a historical landmark. Uh Uh-huh. Well, it is one, certainly one of the most unusual buildings. Just, you know, it's... The current restoration, which is coming in about $29 million, which just finished up this month. I mean, isn't it amazing? Um, there were like thousands of cracks on the facade, which they fixed. And most notably, which I think really funny, there was this big controversy about which color to paint the museum. Oh, right. You said you'd be getting back to this question of color. Yes. Have you heard of the colors Powell Bluff? And London Fog. Powell Bluff is actually a tan color, kind of tan. And this is the one that Frank originally wanted. Uh, and it was, in fact, for a few years. This was the, actually the color. But then several years after that, it was just was painted various off-whites and things. And so the last color that, it, uh, that had been adhered to the building was this color of Lon- London Fog, which is a light gray. So as they were doing the renovations, they were deciding, should, well, should we go back to Wright's original right. vision? Or should we just go with the, the light London Fog? And they just went with the London Fog. <laughs> so it's not quite wow, how... we could have not, had a Powell Bluff. We could have had a big Powell Bluff. But the, um, the museum is finally open. The, well, it's currently open, too. But you're saying a reopening a, a, ceremony? A grand re- reopening on October 30th, which will be free. So everyone can just go check uh-huh. it out themselves. But it's just a way to celebrate the building, bring the building back into the fold and just say, welcome back, Guggenheim Museum. We've missed you. And we have. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our little tour of the Guggenheim's history. 
as always, check out our blog, BoweryBoysPodcast.com. I'll have some pictures of the Guggenheim. Go check it out, and I think you'll find some stuff on there that you like. And if you're on Facebook, check us out there, too. We'd love to have you join the Bowery Boys family. Well, thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you next week.